people couldn't hear me and complain, and the other half had the opposite complaint. <laughs> if you're unable to hear me, uh, I suggest that you uh, raise your right hand. If you can hear me and don't agree with or like what I'm saying, I suggest that you stand up and leave. <laughs> it um, absolutely warmed my heart as I walked across the street today and saw the workmen in the street, uh, digging uh, in the street uh, outside the cathedral. My fantasy was that, that the entire sewer system of the cathedral had broken. <laughs> which sent me into one of my infamous moments of reverie. <clears throat> reverie for me is memory under the sweet sway of intuition. And my intuition was that the dean would be responsible for all the complaints concerning the toilets not flushing at the cathedral. It made me feel so warm about my decision to go to work for myself. Uh, the topic given me for these two lectures was change. And last week I lectured on Don't Ever Change, I Love You Just the Way You Are, reflecting on at least the metaphor that the dinosaurs didn't. I was corrected on that by a physical scientist who uh, developed the theory that the dinosaurs were eradicated by a meteor and not because they refused to change. To which I responded, it's just further evidence that physical science has never understood a metaphor. Uh, today I want to frame a loom against which I'll try to weave a lecture. This will be one of those lectures where people leave um, shaking their heads, wondering, what did he say? Um, a dear friend of mine, a longtime friend of mine who was a parishioner here who uh, listened to me for over a decade uh, told me when I left that he really loved every word I had to say and never understood a one. So I'll be working intuitively today against this loom because I want to talk about change, but I'd like for us to change our minds about time in order that we could understand for a moment something about the prophetic nature of Jesus of Nazareth when he talks about coming again. In other words, the idea of change for me rests both at one and the same time with that which is concurrently part of our own evolutionary process, that is to say what's going on inside us at any given moment, as well as the cosmic evolution that goes on I think it concurrently or coincidentally with our own internal evolution and to realize perhaps that that has great implications for not only the way we live our lives consciously but for the way the church lives its life and say something briefly about uh, the church and its future. 
Now, I want to do this against two romantic poets and two of my favorite poems, uh, one by Yeats, uh, the other by Blake. Uh, the Yeats poem uh, probably is familiar to most of you. It is entitled The Second Coming. Now, before I read this poem and reflect on it from my perspective, I am aware uh, that Robert Bork, uh, the uh, conservative political um, respondent, has written a new book called Slouching Toward Gomorrah, in which he has taken this Yeats poem as both the title and somewhat of the thesis of his political reflection in which he believes that the beast whose time has come round that is slouching toward Bethlehem is American decadence. So lest anybody uh, come up to me afterwards and say, are you aware that Bork, yes, I am aware that Bork has taken this poem and applied it to contemporary America's liberalism and that the unraveling of the fabric of American morality is the cause and effect of all of our ills and that Yeats' poem, The Second Coming, was really a prediction of the rise of American decadence. Now, my response to that is to say that that, uh, to me, is like saying that Melville's novel, Moby Dick, is a fishing story. Uh, whether I agree with Bork's politics or not is irrelevant. I do not agree with his literary criticism. If Yeats, uh, 19th, 20th century Dubliner, Londoner, was writing about in this poem, The Rise of American Decadence, I will be shocked. I would be further shocked if Yeats had any idea about what he was writing. Now, this poem, and it, the fact that it's outlived Yeats and will outlive Bork and me, is witness to the fact that Yeats was only a vehicle for something, I think, uh, sacred that welled up out of him. Now, if we take the deconstructionist view of criticism, we actually say that it makes no difference what Yeats meant, it, what it means to us. And what it meant to Bork was the rise of American decadence. That's not what it means to me. So as we develop this framework or loom against which we will weave some lecture today, uh, let's discount uh, any contemporary reference to American politics. The poem is entitled The Second Coming, William Butler Yeats. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And the blood-dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. 
Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with a lion body and head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs while all about it real shadows of indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle, and what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Now, the second uh, piece of a poem that I would use as my framework for this loom and weave is the opening lines of the Auguries of Innocence by William Blake. Now, to see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. To see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. As I spoke last week, it is, I think, one of the continuing sadnesses of the collective that we presume that our ego consciousness is all that there is. That is to say, those things that we, of which we're aware and those things that we um, proclaim to know are the limits either of awareness or knowledge. And in a conservative estimate, for most who study the human psyche, consciousness is but the tip of the iceberg of the human psyche. So that the breadth and depth of the human being is much greater than we have ever given ourselves credit for. Part of what's known as the Romantic Movement is not about uh, sort of a sentimental uh, Hallmark card kind of romance. But the Romantic movement was about making sacred the human journey and realizing that the individual, that the human individual in the process of being human was a sacred task. It is to elevate uh, the consciousness about the individual journey being as important as the collective journey and that ultimately the individual journey and the collective journey are not separate journeys. That is to say that each of us, as we make our own individuation process, our own process of becoming an individual, individuation being defined as being as closely appropriate to our authentic self as fate will allow, that our becoming ourselves, given our fate, is our stewardship or our responsibility or our religious and moral imperative. 
Uh, following uh, simply collective outer world laws is really finally not the moral issue. The moral issue is do we have the courage and awareness to become appropriately and authentically what we were created to be within the limitations of our own fate. And if we do so, then we are giving uh, the greatest gift to the collective that we can give. So that the evolution of the collective or the community is not uh, to be considered apart from the evolution of the individual. So that our taking uh, great care of our own consciousness and our taking great care of our own life, not in that uh, narcissistic, self-centered idea that I'm the center of the universe and the horizon is defined my, by my place in the world, but simply to say the opposite of that, and that is, as Jesus of Nazareth, our wise rabbi, taught us that one discovers one's life by giving it up. And by giving it up, we mean offering it through awareness uh, to the whole. As I'm fond of saying, I think one of the hallmarks of spiritual maturity is the ability to see myself as part of something greater than myself to which I'm willing to give myself. Now, if one has that awareness, that is, I'm a part of something greater than myself to which I'm willing to give myself, one must have a self to give. And so our taking care of ourselves, being aware of ourselves, seeing as a primary responsibility that the vocation of being human, authentically and appropriately, is the greatest gift that we can give the cosmos, I think, is a hallmark of spiritual maturity. That is to say that your life is of utmost importance, value, and meaning. There is much about life that is challenging to that kind of consciousness. Shakespeare speaks for all of us. At times we feel that sense of absurdity that a life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. I'm a great uh, proponent and fan of the existentialists who say that this is all there is. I think those views are important because if we don't have a contrary view, uh, our predominant view is of no worth. It must be hammered out against others, even within ourselves. So in order to adopt that, it seems to me that we have to have a greater concept of world than simply individual journey on earth. That world means much more than my 72.5 years on earth. That world implies much more. As a matter of fact, the uh, synonym for world for the Greeks was cosmos, which meant much more than world. Even in our English word world, it's limited. It's almost synonymous with earth, which we're aware, I hope, that Earth is such a very small part of the world, that the Earth is such a small part of the cosmos, and we such a small part of the Earth. And yet, the one and the same time, in the humility of recognizing what small part we are of the cosmos, at one and the same time, with that worldview, as it were, that we are something very small and the scope of all that is to see at the same time we can see the whole world in a moment or infinity in a grain of sand. 
so that all that there is up there, out there, all that there is outside and beyond may, at one and the same time, exist within me. The powerful consciousness that makes us all of a sudden lift up and be much more responsible for this cosmos that we carry within. What a fascinating concept that within this human psyche, within this flesh and blood that I carry the cosmos, and that I somehow am acting out in my own journey the evolution that goes on and those are that goes on in the cosmos and that those two are not different. So all of a sudden I shake myself off. A clay a feet is my base without excuse or apology, saying that I I have a sacred task, and that is to make this human journey, and that in so doing, that I am contributing to the evolution of the cosmos. I remember as a child lying in the front yard, uh, looking up at the great capacious nature of the sky. In small, up, small town Oklahoma in those days, the, the nights were dark and the stars were bright. I remember one such evening lying on the ground with my brother and his mentor, Edgar Weiss. Some of you remember Edgar Weiss. It's not a name that I would make up, though the fact, the fact that his name is and was Edgar Weiss uh, somehow was very appropriate, because if you remember, it was Edgar Weiss who gave me my primary sex education. My older brother's friend, even older than my brother, who provided for my brother and me our primary and fundamental sex education, over which uh, 500 hours of psychoanalysis began to help me adjust to. Edgar Weiss was lying with my brother and me looking up at the stars, stars, and he said, sure, it makes you feel little, don't it? Well, even that moment, I, I respecting the opinion of my older colleague, Edgar Weiss, I thought at the same time, it made me feel large. Now, the idea that we could see the world in a grain of sand or the little boy lying on his back in small town Oklahoma could see himself as something large because he was a part of something greater than himself. And even then, in that moment of reverie, memory to the sweet sway of in intuition, I knew that this human task was about something of ultimate importance. And woven into our fabric, the Hebrew poets tell us is the very image of God. I've spent a lot of time listening to people. Somehow, because both things are woven into us, this uh, unavoidable pompous dust that we are and this mysterious grandeur that we are, that split that we experience between being pompous dust and mysterious grandeur, that we are just another living organism and at the same time children of God, not unlike Moses, who couldn't decide who he was. Not unlike Jesus of Nazareth, who was that divine blend of the human and God. 
And because many times of our feet of clay, we never lift our eyes above the ground. And yet, even in our creation story, we know that, and we know in ways as, as Kant tried to reveal to us, that there are ways of knowing that are deeper than reason, that are broader than rationality, that are a priori from the beginning. And we know as deep as bone marrow certain things, and one of the things I think we know because it's written throughout all sacred literature that there is something of the creator in each creature and that our unfolding is a part of the creative process. And listening to people through the years, I see that many of us have not been given that message. As a matter of fact, maybe even coming from this church that we love and admire and want to be a part of so much, even maybe from this church the message has come that we are miserable. That human beings are fundamentally miserable. That seems to be a large part, unfortunately, of the message many of us have gotten, and that is that we are without worth and without meaning. It seems to me, if the poets are correct, that there's a new consciousness coming, and I think Yeats was talking about the second coming of a different kind of consciousness. Uh, not that superficial, uh, sentimentalized, new age rhetoric. I was asked recently my feelings about the new age because, unfortunately, many times, Jungian analytical psychology is associated with New Age philosophy. Somebody asked me what I thought about New Age philosophy, and I responded, number one, I think it's an insult to philosophy to talk about New Age philosophy. Secondly, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. The reason being is it has no tradition, it has no sacred story, no set of symbols. Nonetheless, there is a hunger in human beings for something greater than that continuing rhetoric of accusation that human beings are no damn good. And that unfortunately, and it's being, I think, revised even now as we speak as the church changes in its own consciousness about itself and about its community, that the Augustinian view of human beings is being revised. Unfortunately, you see, many times the patristic fathers who interpreted the Holy Scripture have become the Scripture, so that Augustine, who interpreted the Scripture, becomes the tradition on which much of our theology is based. And Augustine, out of his own neurosis, wrote something about his view of human beings and we have taken it as Holy Scripture. It's being revised. The same with Calvin. You know, Calvin, it's a direct quote of Calvin, that we are totally depraved. I have a Presbyterian minister friend who says that's very freeing. I mean, there's nowhere to go but up. I 
I'm not trying to eradicate by my own uh, theology the idea of human sin. That uh, doesn't seem to need any more than empirical evidence. What I'm trying to posit is some balance in our consciousness to this idea that we're totally depraved, that we are miserable sinners. And to see, as Blake is trying to reveal to us, that eternity's in a moment. That, that is, that the cosmos and its evolution may be going on in our own lives and that we might, in this human journey, be about something very important. So as we speak about change today, one of the things that I would like to lobby for would be a change in consciousness about the human being and a change in Christian theology about what we say and teach about human beings. Uh, let us just take for a moment the logic of the theology that says that we are miserable sinners and that only by the grace of God through Christ have we been redeemed. Let's just assume that for a moment, and let's assume that that's true. Well, if that's true, then behold, there is a new creation. We have been recreated in Christ. That these miserable sinners, that these totally depraved human beings, this pompous dust, this flawed human organism known as the human being has been redeemed in Christ. Well, if that's true, why are we still talking about ourselves being miserable sinners and totally depraved? Now, there's something I think about us that fears that if we ever begin to change our conscious attitude about ourselves, and that is to say that at least there's an equal balance between pompous dust and mysterious grandeur, we're afraid that human beings, we just don't trust ourselves and we don't trust human beings, so that we're afraid if we get a, just a, a, a fragrance of the divinity found within humanity that we will become inflated and that human hubris uh, will bring us down. I think that's a legitimate fear. But there is a distinction I think to be made between inflation, grandiosity, human hubris, narcissism, and awareness. And awareness does include the complexity and perplexity of being human. And that, yes, there is always the humus. There is the dust, the earth, the humus in being human. It's always there. It's an important part of what it means to be human. But at the same time, I think we need some consciousness and need to change the consciousness and transform the consciousness of the human being to say also, we have been given sacred tasks for sacred journey. That it's not only okay to be human, it is a sacred calling to be human. And against the voices of the prophets who speak that anachronistic view that we are no damn good, I would like for some voices to come and say it's good.
to be human. Once again, in a poetic view, I sort of like some of the Eastern consciousness about the idea that it is sacred to be human. The idea that of all the souls that exist in eternity, we are among the most fortunate because we were chosen to incarnate. That we were chosen to be given the human experience. And that we awaken one day into this place. And given the sensorium of sight and sound and taste and touch and smell in which uh, to have an experience. As I spoke last week, because of the tentative nature of ego development and because of our inherited anxiety, we are very much afraid that this is not a secure and safe place. And so we live tentatively. We live provisionally. We live in fear, fear of not getting it right, fear of criticism and disapproval, uh, fear of injury and pain, the fear of rejection and disappointment, fear of failure. And those fears are paralyzing and they keep us in the provisional life that we never finally get initiated in the full membership of being. But I think the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is, as I said last week, and it's not about doing away with pain. The gospel is not about doing away with failure or disappointment or disaster. I mean, one reading of the biography of Jesus says this is a miserable failure. It seems to me that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is about transformation. It's about transforming our conscious view of the human journey. I mean, isn't it possible to see within that story that God thought that the human being was not only worth redeeming, from this total depravity, but that God thought that the human journey was of such that he would enter into it himself. Pardon exclusive pronouns. I'm aware I use them, but it's difficult not to because we wind up neutering God, which doesn't seem to me to be appropriate to a personal view of God. Surely God's beyond gender, but we're not beyond language. So I will at time to time refer to God with the feminine pronoun, which will put some at ease and some at comfort. In spite of my mother's early demise, I'm still on her admonition trying to please everybody. I will do the same honor to evil.
refer to it in both the feminine and masculine. So that God evidently saw something about the human experience of value for God entered into it God's self. And henceforth and forevermore is it not possible uh, for us to take uh, some exhilaration in the fact that God has now ordained the human journey as something sacred. Uh, whatever length that it is possible if we change, transform our consciousness from fear into courage that being human no matter how long it is possible to do it fully. Um, probably like many if not all I sometimes have those moments of reverie writing my own epitaphs. Many of you have heard me before know one of my favorites, which I get from Joseph Heller when he's describing a character in Catch-22. He had a thousand valuable qualities, all of which kept him in a low-income bracket for life. But probably, I think the simplest one that could be said about anyone was that she lived a full life, or that he lived life fully. See, even in our pejorative consciousness, we all of a sudden say hedonist, selfish, irresponsible. I mean, who in the hell are we if Christ says, I come to bring you life more abundantly, and we would not value someone who lived an abundant life? As I said last week, I mean, it's not death that's the enemy. It's the fear of death that's the enemy. You're going to die. As I said last week, if Christianity is a business of preventing death, we've yet to have one success, even and including the founder. I think it's marketable to, to get on TV and say, if you become Christian, you don't have to die. It, it appears to me it's a lie. Now, there are times that I think I might be the exception. <laughs> I hope your laughter was one of identity rather than... <laughs> I used to chuckle to myself. People would come to me uh, before they went on a trip or uh, when they were getting their will together and would say to me, if I should die. <laughs> what? <laughs> You know something I don't? What do you mean if? 
The enemy is not death, it's the fear. As I said last week, it's that ego fear that's the enemy. Christianity doesn't do away with death, it does away with the fear of death. I think the second coming is coming to that consciousness, a new consciousness that does away with the fear. Even within our own scripture, we are given the idea, and I will translate, complete love. It was translated perfect. That's a poor translation. It's the same word, telios, telos, that was translated, ye shall be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. It's a poor translation. That set us up for the idea that we have to be perfect. See, perfect is the opposite of imperfect. Now, how are human beings going to pull that one off? Helios has, I think, is a better translation, not perfect, but the word complete. We are to be complete as our Father in heaven is complete. Complete love. Complete, you see, includes imperfection. Integration of imperfection is, I think, part of the second coming that we will then be aware of the first coming. And the scripture says, complete love cast out all fear. And so it's fear that's the enemy. It's the fear of change because change always looks to the ego like death. It looks like its own personal demise. So any change is threatening and we live our lives in fear. And I think the gospel in its first incarnation of Jesus of Nazareth was about transforming human fear, that we need no longer be afraid of being human. We need no longer be afraid of death. We need no longer be afraid of not getting it right. We need no longer uh, be afraid of being imperfect or being human. So that for me, the second coming is about coming to consciousness about the first coming. So I'm very hopeful about the church. I'm very hopeful about Christian theology because it's incomplete. As I've lectured in other places, the number three is interesting. That is the Trinity, number three. Three is a number of process. That is that the fourth is not there that completes it. So the Christianity is incomplete. So we have a second coming, and I think it is coming to consciousness of the first coming. So all of our critique and criticism about the institutional church, as I'm fond of saying, she is a prostitute, but she is my mother. And it's through the church that I have learned, it's through the gospel that I've learned, filtering it through other human voices such as St. Paul, many times quoted from preachers, the Bible says that's not correct, St. Paul says. For many, when I speak this voice, it's heretical. It's fine. I'm comfortable in that position. You have to be a believer before you can be a heretic, so it proves I'm a believer. I think St. Paul's neurosis is sometimes have contaminated what was the purity of the gospel from our Lord's teachings. So I'm much more likely to listen to the parables than I am the squabblings in those early churches that Paul was writing about women cover their heads in church, for instance. 
interesting admonition. When I came into the Episcopal Church, we were still arguing about that, whether women should wear hats on their heads when they go to church. Oh, yes, it's true. Some of you are shaking your head in recognition. Some thought that Jesus would come back angry if you didn't cover your head when you were coming to the church and were a woman. Even had in most narthex uh, doilies that women could put on their heads when they went into church. So in spite of all of the fear of the institutional church, and the institutional church is to ecclesiology as ego is to psychology. It's afraid, and it's neurotic, and it's narcissistic, so we can be about as critical of the church as we can of human beings. That's who makes up the church and its leadership. As I'm fond of saying, it looks like my family's going to be inundated with ordination, but we only have laymen to ordain is the reason we have such a lousy priesthood. So I'm very hopeful about the church. It's going to be full of human beings. It's going to be like the um, human ego. It's evolving, but it's always going to be what it is, and that is human. So it's not going to be perfect. But I think the gospel contained in the church finally is incorruptible. And I think the gospel is about freeing us for this journey and for our contribution to the cosmos that I think that in each one of us is the whole sacred journey. And that if we come to consciousness of that, that the cosmos might be transformed and we might edge ourselves more quickly toward the omega point toward which we're moving, both individually and collectively. And my moments of reverie, which is my memory combined with my imagination, I'm very hopeful both about my own personal journey and the journey of the church. So the second coming for me is the consciousness of the first coming. And that the human journey for me is to see that all of eternity and infinity can be seen in this human granular. And that in our own lifetime that all of eternity is in what appears to us in our journey to be a moment. And that it's been sacramentalized. It's been made whole in the gospel of transformation. Amen.